Living the Dream acknowledges the traditional owners of the land it is recorded on, especially the Jagera and Turrbal peoples, elders past, present and future, and their continuing struggles for justice and self-determination. Living the Dream is a podcast. Living the Dream is an irregularly and sometimes infrequently published anti-capitalist podcast from Brisbane. Hi everyone, you are listening to Living the Dream and you are here with... John. Hey, John. And I'm Dave. It's been a long time since we recorded a show together. March, I think. Yeah, it's been way too long. And uh, there's a lot of reasons for that. But it uh, does make me think that maybe, Dave, we should just move to a yearly show. A yearly show. Yeah, where like we a- just... Where we just do like a summary of the year, but it takes about seven hours. So, yeah, so that's what we're talking about today. So, yeah. so we, we have a long, um, delayed final part of our series on race after slash in um, white Australia. And we're, it's on Morton Robinson's The White yep. Possessive. Um, and one of the delays is that so far this year, I have read the introduction about six times, yep. which is good, great. Um, and lots of thoughts already raised. And I've, I haven't got past it because one of the effects, apparently, of the moment that we live in is that I've lost the ability to read complete books. <laughs> so I, I think I've read, I've bought a vast amount of books, and I think I've read the first chapter of a huge amount of books. I did try to have, like, a reading heuristic where I was only going to read three books at one time, one serious bit of political economy, one bit of history and an ultra left text as a treat um and i kept to that for a while and i read i read i read um ah a book by a guy called mosley called money and totality about the transformation problem and i read a book by paul maddock called theory is critique and both have been really excellent but my capacity to maintain kind of like sustained ongoing thought uh it's just it's just one of the impacts of of what we're living in at the moment, I guess. Speaking of which, John, how are you going? Oh, yeah. Look, I can't really complain. We've, um, you know, been relatively clustered, relatively isolated up here in Brisbane. We've been able mm. to sort of look down on the on our poor southern comrades with a yeah, I, sense I of, 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 of pity and solidarity, hopefully. Yeah. And it has, it has been... Yeah, like, I mean, there have been challenges here, but the, my most, the biggest challenge I've had in the, the second half of the year has been um, selling out and, 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 and joining the property market. Ah, okay, you bought a house. Yes, buying a house, well, yes. Well, is, we, we know, should, I'm, not a la- I'm not a landlord, though, just to clarify. So. Thank goodness. I'm not going to get like, cancelled. Uh, excellent. Um, well, we should, I think that's one of the things we'll get to at some point is talking yeah. about property and, and other things like that in the year in review. But I think, yeah, just to subjectively at the moment, you, I really feel this experience in Queensland is that we're looking at the fact that our COVID year is about to happen. Yeah. You know, <laughs> that, that we've had two years of various forms of lockdown and the like, but the last year was, 
you know, relatively benign in Queensland. I think we had a couple of, of short lockdowns for very small case numbers. Um, person like that, and and also, which meant I think for a lot of us, particularly if you're like me, so you've got a you know a, a middle class salaried position and can work from home. There were many positives to both to lockdown in both last year and and in this year. Mm. that we experienced but it, it's no like personally like i felt my life in 2021 has been fantastic i've kept on getting really fit you know having a really great time with my family playing lots of dungeons and dragons building a board game while the world outside goes to shit and uh you know what we're facing with omnicron now is that i think we're going into this christmas um and after will be queensland's real COVID year and that's um challenging i had did you read did you read any books on covid this year john <laughs> i did not read any books on covid no i uh tried to avoid the covid book industry but i see it yeah. is you know you really should take some time to sit it out and have a think about it probably first uh you know well, i mostly read tweets dave anyway I yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well yeah that's the thing too like I-, I have been able to read a couple of books on covid because they're small books Hmm. So um, I read two Zizek's two books, Panicdemic, I think they're called, or Pandemic or something like that, which, and they were, you know, fine, short Zizek essays compiled in books where, you know, he seemed to kind of be spiralling around and around the fact that COVID means everything has changed, COVID means nothing has changed. But the, the book that kind of impacted me the most, and I'm actually sitting down to reread it a second time, and one reason I can do this, it's one of those semiotext e um little a5 collection so some of our readers will be familiar with it there's a publishing house that has existed since the 70s um, called semio text with an e um, has some relationship to autonomedia as well but i can't remember just what and the the original editor just passed away recently but they publish a whole bunch of like little theory books which are very cool no, very punk rock and have been part of my life for a long period of time but um, there's this one I, I can't pronounce her name it's Donatella D I want to say Cesare it's spelt like Caesar C-E-S-A-R-E um, and it's her book Immunodemocracy um, and I've read that a couple of times and that's probably been one of the most interesting ones because I, I've maintained like a um, on the whole, I'm beginning to shift my position a little bit, but really uh, a position of I have no fucking idea about how to manage a global pandemic. So I, I try to keep my opinion on... Did you drop a pen? Did you have a pen-related crisis? I just moved on my freaky-ass chair. Oh, chair-related crisis. Um, so I've tried... You know, I maintain... that. I think that's been really interesting. And some of that I think we will draw into because if we're going to talk about 2021, it's going to be hard not to talk about COVID and the politics of COVID and how it scrambled things and the like. But where do we start, John? Year in review, where do you want to begin? Oh, I don't know. I like to start at the beginning of things. Well, are, really? we, going to start with, are we going to start with January 6th then? Uh-huh. The storming of the capital? We don't talk about American politics on this podcast, well, Dave. Don't we? I thought we did. Didn't we do some Trump bit. episodes? Uh, well, I, I, I yeah. wanted to, like, for me, we're allowed a little bit as a treat. Yeah, for a little bit for a treat. Well, can, yeah. can we start with that then? Because okay, I'm, sure. go- I'm going to. You know, I'm Wait, that was this year? That was this yeah, year? That was this year. Well, that's also as well, the kind of total time desolation or desolation yeah. of it. Um, uh, something weird has happened at the time. 
And I've been thinking about this. I'm not sure if it's because we're so obsessed with the kind of present and we can't act. And I really want to get in into those kind of things. So as some of you will remember, uh, at the end of last year, Donald Trump lost the election in the United States. And on the 6th of January, it was the 6th, wasn't it? There was uh, a rally in the United States outside the Capitol building that led to a form of storming the Capitol. And the thing that I wanted to think about, about this, how this really set the tone on a number of different ways, is it kind of showed that we live in a world where things are reversed. You know, I have long waited joyously for the storming of the US Capitol building. But it was meant to be stormed by the Revolutionary Workers' Movement, right? Mm -hmm. It was meant to be stormed by the insurgent multitudes of the US and the globe. But it wasn't. It Mm. was stormed by this block of, you know, this kind of block of the insurgent right, this alliance between elements of the institutional right, the Republican Party, and then this large constellation, this rhizomic network of an insurgent right for everywhere from like Nazis, you know, various forms of patriots to QAnon cosmic right types. And on the other side, there were many people um, on the left of various forms who facing this insurgency um, fell into a defense of the state and mm. a celebration of the kind of prosecutorial, you know, um, that's the wrong word. The, the punishing arms of the state to fight the right. So within 12 months within um, a pot where a politics of abolition had been quite common, you know, there's now this kind of shift to a defence of the state. And it kind of set the tone for, um, I think, so much of the politics of this year where those who have been acting, those who have been engaging in rebellious and insurgent fought, acts have been the wrong side and those who've been defending the state have been the wrong side that at some level those polarities have switched any thoughts on that john yeah i mean it's it is it is really interesting and i mean you're right it's a good way of kind of connecting up with some of the with some of the australian context i mean the, the the class dynamic of this i thought was interesting if my memory is correct then most of the people who stormed the capital were kind of fly-in, used car salesmen and, you know, maybe low-level hedge fund people. You know, these were not, you know, this is idea, I guess, that you get on some sections of the left that we need to cozy up to these sort of right-wing people who are uh, engaging in a politics, as you say, that objectively looks like something that the left would support, right? Storming the capital, um, you know, fighting police, etc., etc. And that, you know, they have legitimate grievances and that we need to appeal to these people and whatnot. But, you know, like, that is itself an imposition of a very, I think, problematic class reading on these people, which says, you know, that because they're, you know, um, upset about the government, then they must be some sort of, you know, ideal working class subject who are just, you know, in need of their false consciousness being removed. And obviously... I don't think that that's true, and I, th- I think that translates well into some of the debate that's been happening around some of these um, protest movements in Australia um, around the opposition, particularly to Dan Andrews as well. But I think yeah, it's worth dwelling on that point on the on the st- on the state as well, because I think the pandemics brought a lot of people who would 
generally be quite critical of the state into a politics of supporting the state. And I think that a lot of that is based on some interesting, but I don't think quite valid historical arguments, which we might get into a bit later. Yeah, that's kind I of. De- I, I definitely well. agree with that. I, I, I have some more things to think. I think on that question of the, the kind of class character of this insurgent right and its mm. alliance with the institutional right, I think there is some, you know, there seems to be people can produce fairly decent either anecdotal or sociological um, kind of evidence that there is a lack of a better term, middle class core or dynamic in these movements, though I think the concept of middle class is often really problematically used on the left. Um, Though I think on the other side there can also be a false reading where, you know, there was a lot of kind of reading of what happened in, in Melbourne, as in people were looking at these movements and saying the very fact that these movements are hostile to the traditional languages and institutions of the left, the Labor Party, the trade unions, or they'll all operate with a language that is not the language of the left, is in itself like proof of their middle class nature. As if, and this is a problem I think that has hung around Marxism for a very, very long time that just thinks there's a one on one correlation between class subjectivity and ideology. And just, you know, you can look at people's kind of position in the mode of production and go, therefore, their ideology must be this. Therefore, you can flip the coin and go, I can see their ideology. Therefore, I can read their class position back. And I think what was kind of more interesting was some of the work that has been done about in the Italian context. There's an essay by the um, Collective of Novelists, Wu Ming, that I think was published on the Ill Will um, website. And there's also one by the um, old participant in, in Operismo and Autonomia, Sergio Bologna, that's published on Angry Workers of the World, that are really trying to say, well, what you've got is a properly non-class movement meaning that this is kind of like a diverse range of people from the middle and labouring and working class fractions of the population acting in a situation where there is no class movement proper and they are historically in their lived experience people who have had very little contact with the declining institutions of the left who are unappealing anyway, therefore they express their politics in a whole range of languages, right? Like mainly ones of the nation state and freedom. And so what seems more important for me is not saying, okay, we can identify our our fly-in used car salesman, is actually that what we're seeing is this kind of, this movement with what I think are, for my opinion, crazy politics, right, and a, and a crazy understanding of how the world works as being the pole in the current moment that can coagulate together and articulate a vast range, uh, a, a arrangement of feelings of social dissatisfaction and rebellion. And that as we move um, out of COVID, right like one of the things we're going to experience and maybe we're not going to move out of COVID like as we live with COVID forever in in a in just this new grim reality is that the who, the, po- the pole that is the point of social rebels will be this insurgent right and that the fact that um that they can coalesce 
a substantial amount of people together around this crazy ideology is worth thinking about. And I think what's also interesting to think about is just how, like, you had these numbers of small thousands of people in Melbourne who were actually more effective at shutting down and disrupting Melbourne through collective action than um, traditionally the left has ever been. Right, you know, like, and who behaved in these? You know, do you do you ever remember, John? Like, there was like these old anarchist T-shirts that used to say, "Whoever they vote for, we are ungovernable." Right? And had, a, had a had a picture of someone from like a riot in the early eighties throwing a Molotov. Right? The, mm. the movements in Melbourne were genuinely ungovernable. Right? Like, there was all this kind of posturing by trade unionists going, "Oh, you know, this is not a trade union rally." Like, here's a mm. photo of a trade union rally, and they showed like a photo of like 100,000 people marching through Melbourne. And it's like, well, the actual important question is, like, why did 10,000 people with conspiracy theories, why were they more effective in shutting down Melbourne than those 100,000 people were, right? Like, heart, like hmm. the sa- same as the insurgency on, on, the, in, on the 6th of Jan- January, it's this insurgent right block that seemed for a large amount of the year to be the force of rebellion that had social power. The counter to this would probably be like the great resignation and strike toba in the United mm. States and maybe a very kind of Australian like equivalent of that perhaps bubbling up in um, in the teacher strike in Sydney and the, the, the struggles of, of um, kind of railway workers and, and bus workers. So that like that's probably the importance for me for like January 16 was beginning to articulate what became some of the confusing shape. And as you know, said as well, like the a shifting of like a large section of what we call the left to a complete uncritical defence of the state and a completely uncritical defence of lockdowns. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 that Italian book you're talking about surprisingly seems to have some Gramscian sort of tones to it, particularly in terms of thinking about hegemony and social blocks, like, I think that's probably a useful way to think about it is that hegemony is never completed in that Gramscian context. It's always a contest, really, of, of, as to who can pull together the, the most forces around a particular, a particular idea. And I guess, so it's not that radical to have a, 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 a cross-class alliance. It's actually quite, quite common in the European experience. Um, but what we've seen i suppose is that there's these ideas that they were able to pull on like you said like freedom these and the yeah defense of the historic nation state which are you know 19th century concepts that have been pulled on into this very new sort of context now where we say where it is pulling together people who we would traditionally see as part of the um of the left yeah in terms of kind of working class, construction workers and whatnot with more of this upper middle class sort of membership, as you say. So I think it's important to think that these these ideas obviously have some resonance with people's material reality as well of of the lockdown, which, you know, um, contrary to what people on on Twitter say, and we've just sort of said here, it's not been enjoyable for everyone because many people have to actually go out there and work um, in the indus- in industries in you know food delivery in logistics in all sorts of things yeah. and probably not like and the people would be grating I imagine you know um, 
at some of the restrictions and some of the difficulties. Retail workers, like lots of people, are not very happy. I'm not. I'm not very happy about about these things. And I'm, not, I'm yeah. fully supportive of the health measures and the lockdown measures that have had to be that have had to be taken. But still, I do think that there's that you know there is a sense. And maybe I'm contradicting myself here. Where I'm, I'm I'm circling back and I'm now saying maybe we should see some validity in the in the um, in these right-wing protests or, or, or whatnot. But what I'm trying to say, I suppose, is that we need to be aware of material reality yeah. at any okay. given time. And so, I know, Sorry. Yeah, so I, I had one chance this year of going down to New South Wales. I went down for a, a comrade's 40th birthday, and it was a really great opportunity because I, I got to hang in. It was one of those nights where I'd seen people. It was the only time I saw people all this year and probably last year, a whole bunch of people. And I spoke to, uh, like, an anarchist comrade, someone I've known for... Uh, probably about 20 years and you know what he was articulating was kind of you know even if you think that it's broadly necessary to engage in these measures you don't have to give up at least the intellectual ground of the critique of the state you know that like you can maintain at least the space of kind of criticism about it but the two points that i think you raised that are really crucial here is also what these these measures showed were the division one of the real divisions that people experienced was with amongst those who who have waged incomes right that there's a real different experience um between those of us that have secure positions with a whole range of benefits and sick pay and the like, and particularly if we can work from home, which brings its own stresses around questions of social reproduction and how children are raised Absolutely. the problems of the home. And, like, it, it's certainly not islands of individual utopia. That's certainly first um, those workers that, you know, either could not stop doing their work couldn't work from home because they do the logistics work and we should shift on a moment to at some point to actually do some big picture stuff about what is happening with logistics and those kind of things or those workers without any of those securities and of course in australia you can you can understand that there's like a race and an identity kind of um hierarchies that match onto those differences too Mm -hmm. and that there there seemed to be like the progress there seemed to be, you know, in the Twitter sphere or social media, which in the context of COVID became like that's the other thing, right? Like the public disappears. Like, how can you even talk about having political agency? How can you not even that I know what to do when what is kind of crucial? what is the base element of a politics, of a radical emancipatory politics, is the idea of the crowd in the street. When the crowd in the street is prohibited from existing for health measures, how can how can you even act? So you, you fall into what's on Twitter and what's on Facebook seem to be any of these criticisms are illegitimate, especially when you have the experience of Sydney, right? Especially when you have a lockdown where if there's in some sections of Sydney, so the eastern suburbs, the lockdown is relatively mild, but it is in the western suburbs of Sydney, the migrant working class hub of where the logistics and is happening. You have cops outside your door saying you can't leave your house, right? Mm. Helicopters flying over. Yeah. Like, so, you know, like I, I was speaking to comrades um, from, from Fairfield and they were saying, you know, people in their social network and their families who do work these logistic jobs live in areas where they can't leave and then they do their job, they drive their truck across the city and they drive past areas where people are playing in parks, mm. right? And 
the 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 how so much and i guess this is you know cat like you were raising before the idea that maybe there you know people turn to the state as the force that can save us from a virus and perhaps it can't right perhaps these health measures are needed for a certain level but it ultimately can't so what it does is just engage in the in the management of life and in the management of bare life you know to signify agamben one of the most problematic people through during <laughs> covid but um like De, De Cesare, she's like an agambinist against agamben. She recently had an essay published where she's like, "We must save agamben's ideas against against him now." So that ex, like that creates a whole range of like legitimate areas of criticism and critique, right? Like, I, I think that's bubbling out now in how people understand uh, mandates in relation to jobs, positions, and ac- across the world, you know, where people like myself who you know are support, like I think I'm. I'm boosted, you know, and I think vaccinations mm. broadly make sense. You know that there's there's at least an uncomfortability with the idea that the state can mandate whole forms of employment or people can lose rights at work over medical questions. Mm. Right? Particularly when, you know, this we're talking about the state, it's a, an alienated hierarchical and fucking ineffective and shit body that is now many people are looking to 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 solve you know so much can i have one final rant as well <laughs> i and i would add to this you know one of the reasons i've been so unproductive in the last 2 years is last year during um the start of covid i felt there was a moment of of keynesian optimism right where people thought okay now that the crisis has happened the state will step in and the state will act and the state will be able to prevent covid fix climate change and open the door to a post-capitalist society and you know there are various documents coming out from the ACTU that broadly pointed in that way i think by this year we just had status pessimism mm. where all that talk of the status transformative had gone away and it was just replaced with like this is just necessary to stop us from dying everyone else is fucked i think that's right and i think it's interesting yeah i mean these kind of imaginaries of the state that people have brought up here have brought up during this pandemic um are very historically are very historically bounded i think one of the particular ones that i think if that, that that's really been apparent has been the post war or the wartime period in australia like we've already had obviously a fairly substantial awareness of that and talked about a green new deal and what not in the past we're already aware of kind of the 30s 40s sort of context particularly in America but yeah so what's what's interesting is that i think many people on the left on the far left have looked to the example of the wartime labor governments and said that this is actually the part this is what's possible mm. if we can just get the state to do the right thing like the state to mobilize to you know mobilize people to take over manpower capacities uh to you know control industries to um you know to um basically operate as a type of war communism you might say and I know there's been some interesting work by Andreas Malm on that on that topic of of war communism and the and the and the pandemic um and I'm not to say you know that there isn't some obviously the labor governments of the 1940s you know as historians say they were, they were good governments and you know the communist party was at its strongest point in this and the communist party was really central in actually enforcing a lot of the labor rigidity that took place in the in the particularly during the war it was a communist party that was using its 
um, domination of many unions to ensure that no one went on strike and everybody fought the for the everybody was fighting the fascists and you know so there's this interesting strike imaginary at that time that I think people want to place onto now and to say well we can well this is what the state can do and it's like well maybe it's what the state could do but I don't think it's what the state can do now like I mean we've just kind of forgotten our own critique of neoliberalism to a degree which has eaten away so much at at the state and instead we've just kind of basically got this utopian ideal that people have of the state of the wartime 1940s state and then people then just pointing at all of the ways in which this our current state doesn't meet up with that and saying why don't you just be more like that more like the 1940s well we've actually spent decades coming up with an argument as to why the state's no longer able mm. to do what it can do and i mean obviously here we talk about this a lot in in this show but there's they don't have the the organized working class in the way yeah. that you had in the 1940s you know so that would be sort of i think that it's wrong headed to see um the post war era unless really as a as a model yeah. or as something that we should you know say that these are the approaches that we need to take yeah and, and and this again relies on what i think is really like a um a subordinated and malleable vision of what capitalism is so there was an amazing document that came out i'm not sure if you paid any attention to this but it's very it's existence is mind-blowing so it's a document uh, i've forgotten the name of it i will link in the show notes so it's basically about um how australia can become a solar power super you know a solar power superpower right Solar power, superpower, and Sounds it good. is supported by the ACTU, the Business Council of Australia, That's and right. two major environmental organisations like the WWF yeah. and maybe the Conservation Council mm. or someone like that. This is the new and corporatism. This is the new which corporatism, is right? which is amazing, which is amazing as well. But the, like the document is really interesting. So in the sense where it goes, it says, you know, these are all the or these is the role that digging shit out of the ground and exporting plays to the Australian to to capital accumulation in Australia. Not using those that language, but that's what it basically says. And it's a lot. And I think that's like no shit, right? And it's really goes back to like Bruce McFarlane's work in the mm. early 70s talking mm-hmm. about what's fundamental about Australia we have this dig we have capital that comes in lots of capital comes in and we dig lots of shit out and we send it overseas but unlike mm. a lot of subordinated uh, nations in the world system like we get a lot out of the nation state gets a lot out right mm. and so it says if everyone keeps to their commitments about moving away from coal power we're fucked right therefore mm. what we need to do is shift to these industries and if we shift to these industries then we'll have this amount of growth hypothetical projection but it's all based on this assumption that capitalism is just functioning normally right that the that the world economy is just going fine that we're not mm. actually in a crisis of overaccumulation since the late 70s that has just been deferred and deferred and deferred through you know uh, privatizations, the smashing of labor, the development of new logistic change, and a massive financial bubble. That's just totally fucking out the window because all these strategies, like, um, totally ignore, like, that they see capitalism as both healthy and malleable, really, and that the state is in control. And what's interesting that you about your point um, about the Communist Party during the Second World War is if. Uh, we were actually to do this the role of the unions would be to discipline labor 
because capital is internally regulated by every firm has to be able to make something close to an average rate of profit or capital fucks off somewhere else. And the way that you regulate that is you ensure labour works at a a reasonable intensity in a reasonable, reliable way. And and that's what the role of the unions would be. So it's like it's... I'm, I'm not sure how I got on that, but... Yeah, it's, it's a fascinating document itself in terms of where a lot of the thinking is at the moment. But I think this is linked to, like, even before corona, you know, we were struggling to work out is, like, what is the subject of emancipation, you know, after the, the old workers' movement? Where is struggle? Where is the new force? And in its absence... Um, not that it is totally absent, you know. You have the riots in the United States. You have movements all around the world. Crazy stuff happening in Sudan, is it? And Somalia, really exciting yep. things, you know, like the the Great Resignation. You know, all this stuff going on, but people looking more and more to, looking to the state where they can't see these other social forces. Yeah, no, that's that's a that's a really interesting point. And I mean, one of the things we wanted to talk about was the Great Resignation. So why don't we? move on to that i mean it's kind of an interesting discussion on that i mean in some ways people see it as like kind of this great refusal in a way that it's a great refusal that it's people uh saying well we don't have to do work these shitty jobs anymore and i'm not going to do them anymore and you see this particularly in america which has the bigger context of course of the 5 for 15 uh, campaign has been very successful and um, that, you know, now um, Biden, I think, is bringing in some sort of probably incredibly watered down version of that. But at least you're hearing now a lot, you're hearing a lot, apparently, about a bunch of, you know, spoiled kids who are unwilling to work mm. um, in, you know, and all this other stuff, which, of course, is, you know, that language, as you say, of workforce disciplining. Um, so that's kind of really interesting. And I mean, this great resignation, I think, has been probably made possible by the fact that borders have been closed for two years and we've returned, in a way, to the idyllic terrain of the Australian labour movement, which is zero migration. And, I mean, I, I, I say this in a joking kind of but, you know, it is. It is. And this is... And, I mean, we can talk... I'm kind of leaning into Striptober here as well, but, you know, like, I think we've seen a lot of successes recently in driving up wage in, 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 in industrial disputes is fantastic particularly the United Workers Union who do, do amazing work but in the context of labour scarcity right yeah. and there's an incredible amount of labour scarcity so yes A people are leaving shitty jobs because they don't want to work shitty jobs anymore um, yeah. maybe there's something to do with the COVID settlement I don't know well, it, B like and B is that other point I just made. C, I just want to talk about the gender dynamics of it as well, because I think you know, increasingly, um, you know, as with all crises, we um, still this in the Great Depression as well. Is you know that um, the jobs that are coming back are more female jobs and they're more precarious jobs, obviously, as well as who are the people who were most hit, most damaged by the um, initial um, lockdowns. Of course, were women in precarious jobs as well. So, you know, the the, the Great Resignation maybe isn't all that it's made out to be i i am not so into the the um more pessimistic readings of the great resignation because i feel that they often rely on kind of a um like a validation of work that i Mm. just don't have Mm -hmm. but i think yeah there's certainly so in some ways it's quite interesting it reminds me of sylvia federici's kind of work on the black death yeah, where right, you know right. she yeah. she yep. she, ad- she attributes the kind of origin of capitalism to the breakdown of feudalism, partly by a labour f- refusal of, of of peasant labour and serf labour, because the the Black Death 
did two things. A, it caused a labour shortage, so it changed the structural bargaining position, but also it ideologically shattered a whole bunch of subservience where people were like, well, why the fuck am I going to do this anymore? But also the ideological, not just personally, but the entire ideological framework of the society was thrown into crisis. And, you know, COVID's been pretty bad, but from a mortality rate, it certainly hasn't been the Black Death. But I wonder if you could think about that there's... um, uh, pandemic theory uh, th- theory of labor insubordination right but i think you're kind of right we now have these conditions of labor shortage combined with people um not wanting to fucking spend their lives dying for these shitty jobs um at the same time where it's in it's pointed out like these divisions within the laboring classes between those who can work at home in front of computers and those who are in these life-threatening precarious positions treated like shit right you know and there's just like a litany of stories uh, out there about like how people have been like what it's meant on the on the sharp end of the stick here where management at a whole range of different warehouses have just ignored safety standards have insisted people keep on going to work all that kind of crap right um so there's that and i think that general kind of wave of refusal has because i have some kind of commitment to an idea of class composition it has been that refusal that has been the basis that has then allowed like things like more strike activity to take place and there was there was an article in um the brooklyn rail recently that's actually like as good as striketober is it's much less than what used to be the normal amount of industrial labor and we shouldn't also just think that all you know the structures of different workplaces means that not it's not always that people fight through the form of the strike, that part of the product of rebellion in the United States um, last year was actually, it was those kind of like uh, insurrections in the cities, the, the, the riots in the wake of the George Floyd killing that also showed other forms of struggle. But I think you can probably imagine, you know, that these are, these circulate and have a relationship with each other, right? People who were involved in, you know, Bernie election campaigns have been involved in riots as well, have been involved in strikes and great resignation. This is like cycling through the multitude in the United States and globally. Um, yep. And, and at, at, at the same time, it's happening in these conditions where, where, where capital is, is facing this labour shortage. Um, so I think what's interesting is... Is this? There's two things I wanted to say about this, about how it's appearing in Australia. Is um, one, it seems at the moment to be in a different section, uh, like of the labour force, perhaps teacher strikes, bus drivers, train drivers in New South Wales. But I also think that whilst COVID makes you want to have a global answer, the real deal, the real level of conditions, will probably be determined by these sites, site by site battles. You know what's being fought out by the teachers in New South Wales, what's being fought out by individual struggles in a whole range of industries, will make what living with COVID looks like. Yeah. Um, and, and poses a kind of alternative to, you know, the polis doesn't exist. All we can do is project fantasies of power onto the state that can apparently get health measures right and save us um, from this. You know, yeah. one of one of De Cesare's, if that's how you say her name, like yeah. her final point from her book. In immunodemocracies that the thing we learn from COVID is our shared and common vulnerability. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. that, that, totally. that 
that and, and that we have to build a common politics in response to that like how do human beings flourish in this condition like we probably won't get rid of it and that is terrifying it's hard to think about sorry john I, I, I as usual got off track there no i think i, I think that's fine i mean the, the in i've been following kind of more i guess the logistics strikes and logistics disputes kind of done in victoria and i do think yeah you can see um i think like in country road for example there's been some great successes recently um and a few other sort of sites down there as well where it has been those people who are on the actual on the actual front line who've been organizing and who've been and who've been winning um some real some real gains and this is kind of the the, the, the funny thing, like your tweet, I think, making a very similar point to what you just made, is a very accurate, which is that it's these it's going to be the struggles that are happening now. They're going to dictate what's going to happen after after COVID. And I think this is the the thing about when I mean, we probably should talk a little bit about the budget, but you know, like the, when they were talking about how all well, wage rises are going to start happening again soon, people. This is the what the treasurer says. In, in eight, eighteen months, you can start to expect wage rises, but no one seems to be the on the on the centre left or the centre right has given a, a, a decent explanation as to how wages are going to rise that isn't basically just strike action. <laughs> you know, like, this is the only thing that I can think of that's actually going to raise wages and that's probably what we're starting to see now is we're starting to see the breakout, hopefully, yeah. of wages and that we're going to start to see, you know, as part of this, of course, of what I said before about the racialized border and how that's absolutely having an impact on on the ability of Australian workers to bargain better. Um, part of it's got to do with the with the great resignation and COVID. And I think, you know, there is something about the shock of the Black Death, which is, I think it was a, it was like a psychological shock for a lot of the people back then, is really the argument I, I think has the most weight, which has made them think, mm. well, shit. I'm almost like literally a third of the people in my town are dead. That kind of changes how I think about the world <laughs> in a whole bunch of ways, in terms of religion, in terms of work, in terms of everything. But in COVID, it certainly has as well. I think it's absolutely given people a bit more, um, a bit more of a way to, uh, to to think maybe their lives could be improved um, in, in in all sorts of different ways. But that's what's really going to fire whatever recovery we have and whatever wage rises we end up seeing are going to be the result of this increased militancy, which, as you say, is not just in the labour movement, but is like a society-wide sense, I think, of greater militancy and. From whether that was in the climate movement, the indigenous sovereignty movements, or um, indeed the re-emerging women's rights movements in in um, in this year in particular, I don't think any of this can really be separated. The sense I think of radicalism and change, um, which is I think a, a really positive thing that we should be seeing now as well. Um, but then I think. It, it is that's the only thing that's going to be forcing wages up it's not going to be a magic ball from the ACTU building a million solar panels though of course that will play some role I'm not discounting the role the state can play but I think it's fairly minimal um, in the big picture yeah so I, I think there's an, a number of things here that's really um, worth thinking about and when you mention logistics it's of course there's a now we now exist in a global logistics crisis Right. Yes. So, uh, again, Sergio Bologna, who I mentioned earlier, has another article which you can find at Angry Workers of the World where he's talking about logistics and it, it, it's really interesting. And so, you know, his kind of starting point is, well, first of all, you know, okay, capital, since its origin, 
has always been about the movement of commodities and people around the world, right? It's yep. it's all it, it has never been a national system. It's always been a global system, and the movement of money, right? But I guess there's a particular kind of logistics revolution um, that builds on what goes before, but accelerates from the 70s on as a response to the crisis of the 970s. So between 960, the mid 60s and 70s, the kind of global deal, the Fordist world order is thrown into into disarray uh, by a whole series of struggles, realizes itself as uh, an, an attack on profits and social stability, and capital does a whole range of different things. One thing I think it does is it recombines uh, logistics um, systems all ar- networks all around the world and then needs to build a, a corresponding complicated system of managing that the, the movement of inputs, commodities, peoples all around the world. COVID has obviously thrown that into fucking disarray, right? And it did that in 2000, by, by stopping this movement, it did that in 2020 when we had like kind of recessionary numbers across a lot of the globe. In 2021, you have a kind of economic recovery, right, which then puts um, accelerating pressure on the logistics crisis, right? Like, because there's demand for things. So the logistics system that's broken becomes more out of whack. And that is one of the reasons that you might be able to explain how we now have a return of inflation. Mm. Now, why is this really interesting? So... You know, if you read the World Eco- the IMF um, World Economic Report, I think it's called the World Economic Report, whatever it's called. Like, so mm. it's kind of interesting, right? Because one thing it says, oh, look, growth's getting better, right? And it's kind of getting better because there's all this supportive action from the government. And so what that really means is there's a lot of cheap money being kind of thrown into the economy, right, that's keeping everything up. It's building a lot of kind of speculative bubbles. You know, it's, that is, I think, the reason why house prices in a, across the world are crazy because you have all this cheap money that's thrown into markets like like real estate that create these people are buying these assets to get the capital gains from them. But on the other hand, it says, oh, well, but we've got this other problem. We've got inflation is beginning to emerge again and the response to inflation is going to have to be tapering down that free money so the only thing that's holding the global economic order together is this kind of and this is the same from 2008 if you read someone like cedric durand he basically says since the late 70s you have these series of economic bubbles that pop and then they're maintained by central banks throwing more and more cheap money at them. So that's the only thing that's keeping global capital together, yet at the same time you have the return of inflation, partly caused, I think, by the logistics crisis, partly caused by now militant workers, these kind of things. And the response to that will be, well, the Federal Reserve wants to keep inflation uh, down, so they're going to have to start turning off that cheap money, which is the very thing that's keeping the ball in the air, right? So that situation, and when we're talking about logistics, its impact and inflation and what this means for how capital can survive in this situation, I think is is really interesting to um, fucking really important. I think we should also acknowledge the role of Comrade Evergiven in this and you know and it was all a bit of a joke when you know the Suez got blocked up oh yeah but it it did it did absolutely show I think um the um the the you know the the way that we have this idea and I talk about this in terms of the internet as well we have this idea we live in this world of you know everything's super connected and you can 
buy something, you know, from, you know, southern Nigeria and you can have it in like, you know, five business days or、mm. whatever. But my track internet is actually based on, you know, the world economy is based on the same things it was based on in the late 19th century, which is a few small little cut throughs that allow world trade to happen in the Suez Canal,、mm. the Panama Canal.、Um, Without those, the whole thing just falls apart. You yeah, know? And same with the internet. You've actually got all of these, you know, you see it. We see it as just like everywhere and ever present. There's actually just a whole bunch of supercomputers in very, very cold rooms. <laughs>、um, which, which we understand in Brisbane because the whole section of us lose the internet when it rains.、Um, <laughs> absolutely. So, but, but yeah, and, and so you have things like these kind of, you know, di-、hmm. disarticulation about where the, the right amount of pallets are. And that creates、um, you know, all, all these kind of, kind of problems.、Um, well, you mentioned at the start of the episode that you've taken on a mortgage. Now, I, I have, I a, have, I have a mortgage too. And I、mm. think if we were to talk about Australian society,、mm. um, one of the things that, where this manifests in Australian society is around housing, right?、Yep. Um, in, in particular, We, we have this situation where house price rises continue to be completely fucking astronomical. I have done a little tappity tap on the keyboards, you know, all the things in the last couple of years that I've started but might not finish about house prices. There's currently,、um, a, well, there was recently a Senate review into housing affordability. And if you just have a look at the Reserve Bank paper on that, it just, it just puts out in statistics everything that we already knew, which is、mm. house prices have gone up. A lot and、uh, um, housing affordability has declined, and this is paired with an increasing split between a generational split between who, who owns housing or not, and rents are really hard to find. And of course, like there's this incredible exchange you can look into it between one of the Liberals,、uh, where he's trying to,、um, who's on the, the senatorial committee, he's trying to,、um, whatever you call it in Australia, who's Trying to school, I think her name is Lucy Ellis, who might be a deputy governor of the Reserve Bank. Sorry, Lucy, if that's not your name or your job position. And he's trying to school her on,、um, on basic economics. And she's going, Oh, maybe the problem is, you know, we're starting to pump too much money out of there. And he says, Ah, you know, if I go to buy mandarins, the price of mandarins doesn't go up because I've got extra money in my pocket.、Uh, the only reason that can explain why house prices are going up is there's not enough supply, right? And because there's not enough supply, prices have gone up. Economics 101. But what the Reserve Bank actually shows is that supplies continue to grow, right? That、yep. there's not this disarticulation between supply and prices, but rather, they don't quite get there, but it's about, you know, that they gesture there. It is about the housing as a, as a financialized、mm. asset. You know, as the price of houses goes up, you know, the demand for houses go up because there's kind of this drive that if you buy them and then you can sell them and you can make money out of buying and selling them, as well as the fact that people still need houses to live in. And、mm. banks,、um, they, they make a lot of money out of constantly lending, right? And then that、yep. debt ta- is taken and securitized and whatever. So, and I think this is what is really playing out in Australia with very weird geographical. Um, dynamics to it as well. So, part of Queensland has seen more people have moved to Queensland, shortages of rental accommodation, all that stuff. So, I think that's another part of, of this year. as And also, what happens if this explodes, right? Like, and on the other side, I think we're, we're seeing more and more the struggle over housing. So, Brisbane's had, there is, a, is it the South East Queensland Renters Union? Is that what it's called? I think so, yeah. 
Sickerer. Um, I've probably got their name. Who've started to do a whole series of pickets around mm. real estate agents. You know, like, it's quite... You know, I've been thinking about Mao's term of the principal contradiction, which doesn't mean, like, the most important contradiction, but it means, like, the point where struggles might, you know, at that moment in a society seem to be coming to a head and housing seems to be important. But the problem is, obviously, there's other ones, you know, you've mentioned before, you know, the fact that the, the culture of sexual violence in, in, in Parliament has led to, you know, a, a re, you know a increased kind of struggle by women in, in our society over questions of sexual violence and their normalisation and the like, um, and, and other struggles that, that, that are going on too. But I think that, that housing is particularly how we're seeing some of these global economic conditions play out in the Australian environment. Yeah, I mean, you know, just kind of as a non-economist, you know, I can just think, you know, well, what there's been over the last two years is a lot of people earning a lot of money and not having much to spend it on is the other thing. I think, you know, the people haven't been spending money on going overseas. People haven't been spending money on um, even on like healthcare. It was remarkable. I got a remarkable email the other day from my private health insurance saying they were going to give me some money because they made so much money on premiums, but no one had actually been doing any surgery. No one had been undertaking, no one had been undertaking surgery because the hospitals had been closed largely and people hadn't been putting off their, their, their healthcare needs. So it's very, uh, so what we've got is a lot of liquid capital needing to be made mm. concrete. I think that's, yeah, that's David, really interesting. Uh, an idea on play on David Harvey's term, um, yeah. I think on that. But yeah, so I think that's probably leading to the bubble within the bubble that we have at the moment, because it is a, there's, there's the housing bubble and there's the 2020, 2021 housing bubble, which is a whole other thing, which I think is fired by, you know, the, the lockdown via the, um, you know, a real refocusing probably of the Australian dream of home ownership around, obviously, the fact that we all have to be at home now. I know anecdotally from my own perspective that it has loosened the strings of the purse of mum and dad, of the bank of mum mm-hmm. and dad. Um, so, you know, there is a lot more capital flowing into the housing market. You know, some, from that- some people... You know, some people are designing an excellent board game about this very oh. issue. Have you heard about it? I hear they're a bit dodgy. I wouldn't, I wouldn't trust them. I don't know. Are we, are we, you can do a plug if you want. Yeah, I feel weird about it. But yes, for listeners, <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm launching a board game in, a, in like a, a two months or so called Baby Boomer. I'll have a link. You should support me on Kickstarter. Um, you know, I feel weird. Like, I'm still of the generation where mm. the way that you do something creative is that you do it and then you don't promote it and then no one pays any attention to it and then you die and people think you're a genius and that that is the way but obviously um other people are quite good at you know that's that's not how capital works right now no not 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 really but yeah i mean i think the housing thing is really interesting and we're going to see I think, yeah, that's an absolute point. I mean, interesting from the perspective of someone who's very securely housed, you yeah. know, horrifying from the perspective of, you know, many people who are out there trying to rent in a market where, you know, well, like you are, we moved are, out of our rental and they upped it by $100. Yeah. The rental that we were in, they, we left it and they upped it by $100. Stop, stop tapping the mic. I'm tapping the table, Dave. I'm trying well, to emphasize a point. Well, it's, it's profound. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, but that's, that's interesting too, right? Because I think... You know, this is something in our shows for the last couple of years, what we've really looked at has picked up is that a lot of the struggles are not, 
like because wages have been stagnant since 2013 right we could say before then there was wages growth but even then i think house prices and debts grew faster than wage growth but wage growth has been stagnant around 2013 and and whilst you're saying yes in australia there are now some fights around wages for a long period of time well not for a long period of time for the last couple of years what we kind of noticed was it was not the wage that became the point of of contest contestation but rather it was the home right um particularly you know renters dealing with their conditions of how fucked it is is to rent and you know some way we can talk about like the struggle over the right to the city you know which led to Jonathan Sree's election campaign, perhaps the revitalisation of the South Brisbane Greens, and that was a certain instantiation of the global move to a more radicalised form of social democracy, was around housing and, and more broadly urban space. But that was also related to developments in the kind of housing too. What a politics of housing looks like more broadly, I think, is still quite an open question. Um, because whilst we would really like to have a split between kind of landlords as capitalists and renter in the role of the proletarian, it's not that necessarily that simple. You know, like there's been a lot of different stats on this back and forth, and I think there is more of a centralized, there is a slow move of more and more of a centralization of investment properties in smaller and smaller hands. But the way that credit is so cheap, there's been a constant incentivization of wage earners to own multiple houses on mortgages, right? Hoping yeah. to get the capital gain. So often people, it is workers renting from workers. Um, yeah. with, with the people who are, re- with the rent itself not being the source of income for the investor, but rather the rent going to pay off the mortgage with the yep. investor hoping that what they're gaining from is is the capital gains either with that on paper or being able to sell it and and gain a profit that way so i think what that like what a politics of that means is when you've got a large proportion of you know who we would consider the working classes right um who are uh, are, are, are play the role of the landlord you know, and, and this creates some kind of basis for, you know, a more conservative politics that's focused around the maintenance of interest rates. And the maintenance of interest rates are often around, well, we don't want inflation to rise, so we've got to keep a cap on wages. How this plays out, I reckon, is going to be pretty challenging, but um, it's certainly hmm. up there. Yeah, I mean, my you know, general thought on that is, you know, the government should insure all mortgages and we should build 500,000 new public houses would be the most basic demand that you should make there, you know, because that cuts across both those problems that you were just talking about, I mm. think, to a degree. I mean, you know, we don't like to propose solutions for the state to enact no. on this on this program, but it is it is it is interesting to think about what could happen if yeah. we did have kind of a utopian state that worked and, and you know yeah, that didn't but, just serve the interests of capital. But but you you started by saying that's an impossibility, John. It is an impossibility. It so is, I, but I like to I can still fantasize, can't I? Yeah, but I, th- but I think that's the wrong fantasy. <laughs> like, I think it's, it's the, the, the fantasy should be how does um, an emerging movement of people in struggle solve this question exterior to the state? Like, I, I, think, like, I think that we, even in our 
even our inner, even our, our fantasies of human emancipation, I'm not sure that there's much role for the state on it, except for us forcing it to concede things and give ground. Yeah, I mean, that's what um, I'm kind of talking about, is, you know, that would obviously be something that would need to be forced and won, you know. No one's saying that the state's going to step in and do that. Yeah. Because the state loves doing nice things for people, you know. Yeah, but I think, yeah, it is, yeah, I, I think that, that'll... How we think about the state... Um, I, I really like there were some discussions during the the last couple of months where I really think we're going to see very like if we're going to use the term the left or whatever or amongst friends and comrades like two very different versions and mm. the question of the state and the state's relation to disobedient populations is going to be one of the dividing lines. You oh, know, yeah, we're, we're, whether we see the the state as a force that infor- is there to to, to um, morally rectify, train, and enforce a social good, um, or whether mm. we see the the state as an as an always an enemy, even if we might, um, for reasons of practicality, go along with it at various different times. Yeah. All right, John, you said you only want to go for an hour. Have we I covered do. everything that happened so far in two thousand and twenty one? Probably not, but I think we've given it a decent go. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot, there's obviously a lot more we could talk about there. I mean, we didn't talk about, you know, the universities, but, you know, whatever. Well, we should, we should do, the fact is, if we do more shows, we can dig into these more. I think it's probably, yeah. we probably have um, downplayed a little just how big um, Omnicron yeah. It's probably going to be. Oh, yeah. I mean, and I think it's, it's absolutely going to... Like, it's so weird being up and you kind of feel like you're finally getting it. Like, I know you sort of said that, but we've had, like, this 18 months where we've had the zero COVID fantasy and now everyone seems to just be like, okay, now we're getting COVID. Mm. So just, like, just relax. Go do some shopping. Get tested. Yeah. Maybe isolate. There might be a 1,000 cases a day in two weeks. But it's okay yeah. now. And I mean, you know, obviously yeah. there are very good reasons as to why that's the case, but it is just like slightly um, disconcerting and, yeah. and discombobulating of one's kind of uh, sense of reality. Yeah, I, I had a friend recently who kind of said with some resignation, you know, like, well, I liked feeling safe, right? Mm. And, you, you know, we can, and I think it's important just to accept that as just mm. a statement of fact about, you know, I agree, like, it's you yeah. know like on one hand it's it's um you know there's something very confronting about reading to Cesare again apologies for the name and saying yeah. look you know and part of her argument for the book is there's this been thing that's existed before covid which she calls immuno immunodemocracy which is the idea mm. that you have states that seem to shelter smaller and smaller groups of people from the harms of the world and keep everyone yeah. the fuck away through states of exception and she her argument is well they never really work right and what they no. do do is they like the the immune system turns on itself and creates all kinds of internal forms of, of violence right so yeah you know, the, the end of her her paragraph is we will have to live along her, the book the final paragraph is we'll have to live alongside this virus and perhaps with others this means cohabiting cohabiting with the rest of life in complex overlapping intersecting environments yeah this must take place under the sign of a shared vulnerability and this vulnerability is what has now been 
rediscovered. That sounds amazing, but when you think about the people you love, your kids and your partner and your family getting mm. sick, and we know that probably all of us will get it, most of us will just have a really shit two weeks, some people will have a really shit two weeks, some people will have a disastrous period, and then another group of people will then have months, if not years, of dealing with long COVID again and again and again. Mm. That's it's hard to face, right? And like, particularly when we've already got this, you know, and and she says this in a book, you know, even before this happened, we didn't really have a clear idea about what emancipatory political activity looked like. Which is why I think these kind of, these struggles like the strikes in New South Wales, as well as the global kind of insurrections and the like that are happening around the world are so important because they're the points where you can see like an attempt to re-articulate something else. Yeah, I like that concept of think it was immunocapitalism, you said, because I think, you know, obviously we've seen it on steroids during the COVID period and, and we saw I think it was this year that Scott Morrison banned the entire country of India from Australia. Yeah. Just like randomly, yeah. That was yeah. that was Oh that well was... Omnicron's perfect, right? Where you yeah. know, it's discovered in South Africa. So we go, okay, here's like a whole series of Afri- people from African countries that can't come in. But it's yeah. already here. Right? Like <laughs> yeah. you know and 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 also I think what this really comes down to when we talk about our shared vulnerability, our global vulnerability, um, mm. is the fact that we haven't removed the fucking patent from the vaccines. Yes. We and don't so much as share a vulnerability as share different levels of vulnerability, obviously. Yeah. So it's all well and good to talk about, yeah, that you know, we need to all rediscover our vulnerability, but some people never lost it. Many yeah, so people never lost it. So So, you know, you raise the question of the border and if it's yes. created this kind of perverse kind of labour shortage and how that's mm. you know but the other side of enforcing the the border as opposed to opposing, you know, pulling it down in multiple senses is this way that we haven't engaged in, you know, getting the vaccine out across the world. Like yep. um, you know, this idea that if we just build the walls big enough we'll be fine. But you know, for for there there are other people that we love on the other side of the wall but even if we're just fucking selfish it's just going to increase um the 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 mutations and the more viruses to come so um even if Mm. and like i'm not i'm not running that as a pro or anti uh lockdown position either like i I really don't know how to manage a, a pandemic i i um participated in all the lockdowns i was told to participate in but at least we can maintain some kind of space about saying well maybe there's some negatives and others on them too yeah absolutely i mean my in a final my final party comment slash book recommendation might be i've been reading kim stanley robinson's new ministry for the future and i think okay. it's been it's really interesting because it cuts across some of these issues already you know about what's well if this is what covid looks like then what's the climate crisis gonna look like yeah. is that if we've got a microcosm you know that's kind of almost like a yeah, a moot point now <laughs> you know we've got yeah. a we've got a uh a, 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 kind of a a test tube scenario of what the climate crisis is going to look like it doesn't look very good but i think what robertson is looking at is well how can people collectively around the world actually organize using the state and outside of the state to um Mm. to actually change the world for the better so that we can actually fix these problems and not just rely as you say on exclusion and and unfortunately i think the left has fallen back on on a politics of exclusion and of control when we need solidarity Something that I, I really wanted to talk about, and we're, we're going well over time here, that's linked yes. to this as you well. You have five has, minutes. Well, I, I thought finish. I wanted to be, you as a historian of the new left, 
um, yeah. as being how so much the critique of science and technology has been kind of given up on. This is interesting. Yeah, I mean, also the critique of specialization and um, and the the critique of, of of knowledge, I suppose, in a way, has a, we've, we've we've and I mean, I've thought about this a lot, which is you know, sort of by tweeting something to the effect of you know, the left used to have a have a critique of the expert, you know, and that we you know like there are lots of you know French theorists who've who've written about who've written about this, you know, that and this is actually kind of what the what the work class movement of the seventies did to win gains was every was um, if you worked in a factory, then the union would ensure that you were cycled through every part of that factory, so you knew everything, so that you would break down the politics of expertise that was maintaining hierarchies within the within the workplace. So we used to yeah doubt experts, but now we've come to rule of experts and and technocracy in a way to the extent where we have not well I don't I'm sure you don't, but some people have pillowcases with chief health officers on them and and whatnot that can't be true I think part of this is like this fantasy that can't be true. of the fully that can't be true of course it's true um this fully functional this is fantasy of the fully functional state which is yeah in, the yeah, state who is, knows you know, the state who knows the state that can the all-knowing state the state that will look after me the state that is looking after me um you know but on the other side of course you know what does the state need to do to look after you it needs to lock people of color overwhelmingly into public housing estates it needs to separate families across the world for years. People who cannot see their families um, internationally and still have really no realistic hope of seeing their families overseas. And of course, we much of the organising of people who say, you know, that well, people saying lockdowns are to help, you know, to ensure that essential workers are healthy, to ensure that essential workers can go about. Um, their work unmolested, which is very important, but it also seems to ignore the fact that many of the essential workers are of migrant background who have family overseas, you know, who are being affected not just by the potential of getting COVID, but also by, I guess, this 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 separation. You know, while some have found COVID and lockdowns to be um, a, a kind of comforting experience for others it's been an incredibly isolating experience of course particularly if all your family are overseas right i i think so but also i think you kind of you could go back uh, a second as well as where you know there's that because people see the the kind of anti-vaxxers and the rest as just yeah a question of, like they're the cosmic right you know they're they're fascists or pseudo-fascists mm. or whatever and they have this critique of science Therefore, we have to defend scientific knowledge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is, you know, related also to kind of climate denial. Like, th- this ignores how much there's that the, the, the truth in what they say is, of course, like when we're taught, there's no such thing as science with a capital S. There are just lots and lots and lots of people who are scientists engaged in a broadly similar epistemological project that produces a whole range of different knowledges. And they, mm. live, in, they live in the world and the world that they bring into their work, the ideologies that have always produced them. And they also exist working for state and corporate institutions. And they do lots of really great things, right? But mm. you cannot deny that also what happens is that there's a whole bunch of profiteering that you can have a critique of big pharma and yeah. the like yeah. that uh, that research is skewered in multiple different ways there's all for, there's all kinds of um, you know inadequacies and incapacities now that doesn't mean the cosmic right critique um, shouldn't exist but it also like remember how important like the critique of science was to feminism because 
it was yeah. partly well, the, about well the, the the gay rights movement yeah totally because it was it was about cl- you know claiming back a certain knowledge of your own experience against those that say well mm. as the scientist i know really what you feel you know, like, and in the case of the gay rights movement that it was science that was pathologizing them saying that you yeah. are unwell that you are mentally ill yeah you know like that you know like yeah so there was a massive response against against science but then on the other hand of course you know these are the, the we're not, these are the people who have come up with these incredible vaccines in a very short period of time um and have managed to inoculate the west yeah totally and, and well, i think and i think when we, when we look back about like where is the heroism of mm. the moment it, it is in i can't imagine what it's like to be working doing research mm. on on COVID, I think people are probably clocking in 14-hour days for years and years and years, doing life-changing work. But it's also in, you know, when I went and got my booster mm. done, you know, it's the, the, the workers from the, from the Metro South Queensland Health who are, yeah. you know, from the security guards out the front who are maintaining banter, managing, like, like there was 100 people there that kind of went mm. through in the hour that I was there. Um, you know, it's the really officious people on the desk. It's the nurses putting in the shots. Like, it's all this is the work, and it's all broadly related to science. So, but but there was at least a complicated space for a critique of science and a critique, as you said, a critique of the expert. And like mm. the critique of the state, a lot of that has been like handed over. Yeah, I mean, it makes me think of of, of the Maoist movement in the seventies that tried to organise like science for the people. Mm. And science, like these kind of groups of scientists, you know, to break with. It still you know, exists, yes. right? Oh, yeah, yeah, no. To a certain degree, absolutely. I mean, a part of that was, you know, that science was complicit in anti-colonial wars. You know, the science was complicit in the Vietnam War and whatnot, but also that, you know, that the medicine uh, did not serve the people. And yeah. that science and medicine need to serve the people. So I guess, yeah, like, where do we sit on this? Because I think, you know... And, it's times like this that it's easy to kind of just I think a lot of people have done is just to you know get rid of our you know dubiousness towards authority and just to say that authority knows yeah. what's best but if anything this has shown really that authority does not know what's best unfortunately yeah, and, and also things that you know that as again you know I'm vaccinated tr- three times um, yeah and I think everyone should be but like this you know part of the the argument for for vaccination has been okay mm. like what we really want to do is we want to slow the impact it has on our number of hospital beds and yep. and I know that Queensland state government just spent 200 million dollars on the health system I don't know what it'll look like but it's claims to increase hospital beds but broadly the debate about well why don't we increase hospital beds has not been part of it it's been like that's seen as a given right that, and I heard a, a guy on local radio the other day um, on the ABC saying like, well, you know, for, it's been 30 years uh, every time there's a spare bed in a hospital. That's seen as an economic inefficiency because it means that the nurses aren't working to their approved ratio, right? Mm. So instead of people working to one to four patients, they're working one to three and therefore that bed is a loss, you know? So the, the, if we're talking about health, there's more than vaccines, right? And there's also more than masks and more than mandates, yes. You know, in terms of the ventilation, organisation, space, all this kind of stuff is yep. just there. But look, we're it's almost... It's system. Yeah. It's almost like you're going to change it all. It's almost Christmas as well, John. It is. I'm, I'm enjoying my first week of holidays. Nice. Which I got thanks to the historic union movement. Yeah. 
for better or worse, and I'm, I'm uh, enjoying some time off. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so am I. I'm trying very hard um, to not get isolated. No, not become a close contact yeah. and get isolated yeah. before Christmas because my mum would be really bummed if I didn't make Christmas. Yeah, it would. It would be pretty sucky. So yeah. yeah. I mostly stay at Kids would anyway, be really happy. I'd be upset. Yeah, yeah my, my kids would be unhappy yeah, as well. Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, I guess, like, wish everyone... Merry Christmas. Good, good time. Well, Merry Christmas, season's greetings, whatever you and, practice. And so, however you practice. If you don't practice, hope you get a good time to relax yeah. and chill and get ready for what will hopefully be a better year next year. Yeah, and I am, I am now up to the third chapter of The White Possessive. So right. I'm hopefully I'm going to get it done by yeah. the end of the year. Slate that in for January. Yeah. For January. Um, thanks, right. everyone, for listening to Living the Dream. Um, John, we should catch up soon, and uh, this has been a lot of fun. Absolutely. All right, take care, later. mate. All, All right. right, bye-bye. Thanks, mate. Bye.